Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child neglect that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. From the outside, the compound didn't look like much, just 0.17 acres of land on the edge of the Russian city of Kazan. The property was surrounded by a high wall, a neat rectangle of beige brick punctuated by a mint-colored gate. The compound had maintained a quiet presence in Kazan for the last several years. Sometimes townspeople could hear the people moving around behind the walls, or hushed voices talking. But the mysterious group never engaged with the local community and rarely left their confines. The townspeople got used to their strange neighbors. Apparently, the fortress was run by a self-proclaimed prophet. They called themselves the Pfizer Rachmanist Movement, named after their leader, Pfizer Rachman Satarov. The people of Kazan certainly thought that was a bit strange, but as long as they left everyone else alone, the surrounding community didn't seem to mind. But one day, a new, unusual noise punctuated the landscape. Curious neighbors strained to catch it. But once they heard it, the sound was unmistakable. Dozens of shovels digging. The group dug for days, seemingly nonstop. But then, just as quickly as it appeared... The digging stopped. And now, the compound was completely silent. No hushed voices, no quiet sounds of feet tramping over the dirt. It was as if everyone inside the compound had vanished. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Tuesday, we look at occult practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week in a one-part episode, we'll focus on Pfizer Rachman Satarov and the Pfizer Rachmanist movement, a Russian group that claimed to be a separatist sect of Islamic origin. After being expelled from traditional Muslim society, Sitarov gathered a group of dedicated followers and moved into an isolated compound in remote Russia. But eventually, the group would be forced to reintegrate against their will. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. As a plant-based cheese company, Daya has never talked about beef in an ad before. Because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Daya cheese on a beef burger 
not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Daya, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Daya Oat Cream Blend. Not much is known about Sitaroff's childhood or where he grew up, but we do know that he was born in 1929, somewhere in Central Asia, possibly Russia. He spent his early life in a region with a large Muslim population and a religious culture that valued the close study of the Quran and its teachings. Sitaroff received his education in a conservative world, where a traditional interpretation of Islam wasn't questioned. But as a young adult, Sitaroff felt different from his fellow students. At first, it seemed like only an inkling. He felt his connection to God was more intense and unique than anyone else's. However, Sitaroff wasn't supposed to have a relationship with God that elevated him past other Muslims. According to a BBC interview with theologian Rais Suleimanov, Islamic practice dictated that there could be no prophets after Muhammad. Still, despite being taught differently, Sitaroff knew that God held him in special regard, and in the mid-1960s, Sitaroff got confirmation. He had his first vision. In the mid-1960s, trolley buses were a common way to get around, and Sitaroff would have likely used them regularly. It's easy to imagine him, by then in his late 30s, squeezing onto the bus along with dozens of other people. One day, Sitaroff saw a shock of light explode from one of the cables attached to the trolley. Sparks flew into the air and skittered across the stone street. From anyone else's perspective, the sight appeared meaningless. Trolleys sometimes generated sparks, and this moment wouldn't have been any different. But Sitaroff saw hidden meaning in that metallic burst. A message meant just for him. To him, it was God's divine light. It was confirmation that he had a connection to God that others couldn't see. Years of doubt baked in by his traditional education washed away. His previous beliefs were cemented in his mind. His relationship with God was special and more profound than anything he'd been taught to expect. God had a plan for him. Despite his strict Muslim upbringing that taught differently, at that moment, Sitaroff began believing that he was a prophet. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to Stephen A. Diamond, Ph.D., a licensed clinical and forensic psychologist, cult leaders often fall into a messiah phenomenon where they believe they're messengers of a higher power. These self-proclaimed prophets can serve as the ultimate rescuer, an omnipotent and omniscient being that loves and protects us. A big component of this messiah phenomenon is the claim of having a unique connection with a higher power. Sitaroff's vision is a perfect example of this. It emphasized his connection with God and separated him from others within the faith. He felt he was special, and this moment with the trolley proved it. Despite the sudden revelation, for nearly two decades, it seems Sitaroff kept this information to himself. He continued studying Islam in its standard form, moving throughout the Soviet Union as he worked with a variety of teachers. We don't know much about this period of his life, but Sitaroff established himself as a well-respected senior member of Islamic society. 
In the 1970s, when he was around the age of 40, Sitaroff joined the Spiritual Board of Muslims for the European region of the USSR. In the 20th century, the Spiritual Board of Muslims served as one of the highest governing bodies for Islamic law in Central Asia. Within the region's headquarters in the Russian city of Ufa, an elite group of mufti or deputy mufti served as experts on the Quran. A mufti held an immense amount of cultural power. He could offer his position, or fatwa, on anything from marital issues to larger philosophical questions about the role of Islam in daily life. As the mufti's right-hand man at the time, Sitarov was profoundly respected by the Muslim community in Central Asia. He connected to the larger Muslim populace as a religious leader by being a high-ranking scholar of all things Islam. This was a chance for Sitarov to share his connection with God to the masses and bestow his gift unto the world. But soon, even this important role wasn't enough. The 1980s marked a massive shift in Sitarov's relationship to Islam. The 50-year-old began to outwardly distance himself from the more traditional practice upheld by his fellow muftis. Sitarov started preaching a mystical interpretation of the Quran of his own making. During this time, he formulated the first tenets of the Faizarachmanist movement. Sitarov combined elements from a variety of Islamic sects. From Sufism, he adopted the belief in an individual's inward search for God. From Salafism, he brought in the desire to connect with an ancient version of Islam that wasn't linked to modern-day practice. Salafism proved to be particularly inspirational to Sitarov, especially quietist Salafism. In this sect, believers rejected any need for political activism, preferring instead a quiet life dedicated to practicing a pure form of Islam, free from outside influence. With these tenets established, Sitarov started critiquing major elements of modern Islam. He expressed his concern over the distinction between Sunnism and Shiism, a sensitive subject that immediately made Sitarov appear all the more controversial. The two groups have coexisted for centuries, sharing many similarities, but differing in matters regarding law, ritual, and doctrine. But to Sitarov, these differences were impractical. As he explained it to his critics, Allah forbade disunity. All of this horrified the muftis around him, who saw this sudden shift as a complete disregard of the traditional practices of Islam. But none of this compared to his final declaration. After decades of remaining quiet, Sitarov finally told the world what he truly believed. He was a prophet. For the spiritual board of Muslims, this was the final straw. Declaring oneself a new prophet went against one of the most basic tenets of Islam. Based on his actions, the board saw Sitarov as a danger to the Muslim community. He represented a massive disrespect to the very foundation of their religion and challenged traditions that had been held for centuries. Something had to be done, and fast. By the end of the 1980s, the group made a decision. The spiritual board of Muslims expelled Pfizer Rahman Sitarov stripped him of his position as executive secretary and barred him from stepping foot in a mosque ever again. For the spiritual board and the more traditional practitioners of Islam, this motion seemed like a conclusive way of stopping a dangerous challenger in his tracks. They likely believed that without any connection to the modern Muslim world, Sitarov wouldn't have any way to spread his beliefs and poison the minds of vulnerable believers. But Sitarov had other ideas. 
this expulsion seemed like the perfect opportunity to fulfill his God-given duty. Now the real work could begin. Coming up, Satarov gains a small group of dedicated followers, and the Pfizer Rock Monist movement is born. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. By the end of the 1980s, 60-year-old Pfizer Rahman Satarov found himself completely expelled from modern Muslim society in Russia. He lost his position in the region's spiritual board of Muslims and was forbidden from entering a mosque ever again. From the outside, things couldn't seem worse for the religious scholar. But Satarov saw this moment as the beginning of an important new chapter. Sitarov decided to dedicate his whole life to a new spiritual path, the Pfizer Rachmanist movement. He cherry-picked elements of a variety of Islamic sects, all wrapped up in one controversial declaration. Pfizer Rachman Sitarov claimed to be a prophet, something that traditional Islamic teachings forbade. His newfound belief system championed a move away from such traditionalist values. Sitarov saw his movement as a return to his version of ancient Muslim life, one that isolated itself from the modern world and connected with the Quran on a simplified, individualized level. With his Pfizer Rachmanist belief system in place, now he just needed to find people willing to listen. To preach to the public, Sitarov needed to officially register a sect with the Russian government. That proved much easier than it might have seemed. In the aftermath of the USSR's collapse, many people began aligning themselves with various religious practices, 
Eschewing the atheism that had been favored by the former government, it was a time of massive religious development and diversity in the region. It appeared the perfect moment for Sitarov to develop his own movement. With the changing cultural landscape, it seemed profoundly easy to register a religious sect. The Russian government appeared more lenient than the Soviet Union regarding religion. So, despite his seemingly radical beliefs, Sitarov registered without incident. After officials filed the paperwork, he could officially preach to the public with no repercussions. And Sitarov immediately got to work. Sitarov initially preached in Ufa, where he had served as an executive secretary. But soon, he traveled to Nabarizhny Chulny and other Russian cities with large Muslim populations. And slowly, a small collection of people began to trickle in. This group started following Sitarov as he traveled across Russia, listening to him as he spoke in the streets. Still, most people simply weren't interested in his teachings. Throughout the decade, Sitarov never had more than 80 followers who aligned themselves with his belief system. Religious studies scholar Galina Yemelianova theorized that this small number resulted from Sitarov's unique belief system. The Vaisrock Manas movement was extremely preoccupied with self-sufficiency and a rejection of larger Muslim society. That stance could seem a bit too extreme to some people, which then limited the pool of potential converts willing to follow Sitarov. But Sitarov counted on that. Yemelianova explained that the so-called prophet knew his beliefs would restrict the number of his followers to only the most worthy. In these early years of the movement, Sitarov proved to be what psychologist Len Oakes defined as a messianic prophet. In his book, Prophetic Charisma, The Psychology of Revolutionary Religious Personalities, Oakes distinguished between this type of prophet and the often more dangerous charismatic type. Sitarov wasn't interested in charming as many followers as possible, nor was he claiming to be God himself. He based his authority on his connection to God, a relationship that made Sitarov responsible for sharing the messages and visions that he claimed to have received from Allah. Oakes writes that messianic prophets usually adopt the posture of being merely a vehicle for God, or God's mouthpiece. This enables him to admit mistakes, to compromise, and to advance a less-than-total claim. Here, the Pfizer-Rachmanist movement could rely on Sitarov's visions as a lifeline to God's true desires. In the early years of the movement, Sitarov used his messianic role as a way to build an unyielding trust between him and his followers. While 80 people might not seem like much to larger religious sects, this small number likely was more than enough for Sitarov. These people constituted the elite group of worthy parishioners that he had hoped to find. They called themselves Muammin, the Arabic word for believers. With this small, dedicated community in place, Sitarov thought it was time for the movement to take its next step on its journey toward salvation. From the beginning of the Pfizer-Rachmanist movement, Sitarov had declared the need for total autonomy from larger Muslim society. Wandering from city to city proved a good way to try to find followers, but Sitarov never saw that as his end goal. He wanted a self-sufficient community of believers, a place for his image of a utopic Islamic society to thrive. Sitarov believed to be truly one with the more ancient tenets of Islam. He needed to isolate the group from the more modern iterations of religious practice. 
and in the late 1990s, that idea came to fruition. That year, one of the group members reportedly approached Sitarov about a recent purchase. He'd bought a small parcel of land in the city of Kazan on behalf of the sect. The location seemed perfect. There was enough land to house all the members of the group with plenty of room to build. We don't know much about the planning that went into this move, or whether any infrastructure already existed before the group finally settled in. But Sitarov appeared delighted by this member's spontaneous decision and he hurriedly set things in motion. By the end of the year, Satarov moved the Fizerock Modest Movement into their new home. The group wasted no time creating an isolated space, free from any prying eyes. They constructed brick walls around the perimeter of their land, tall enough to obscure nearly everything from the outside. While Satarov had the visions, it's unlikely that he helped much with the construction. By 1999, the self-proclaimed prophet was about 70 and largely reliant on the work of his followers. Despite his age, Sitarov still lorded over his followers with all the power and respect of a divine religious prophet. His followers were apparently all willing to do his bidding. After all, they likely saw Sitarov the way that he saw himself, as a person endowed with a holy gift, a unique connection to God. With the perimeter complete, the group began building more infrastructure inside the new fortress. While our research wasn't able to uncover any remaining pictures of the inside of the Fizerock Modest compound, from what we can tell, there were a handful of simple structures on the property. The most visible structure from the outside was a building topped with a green minaret. This may have served as a place of worship. When the construction ended, Sitarov declared the community its own Islamic caliphate, or state, with its own laws. He molded everyday life around his interpretation of the Quran, a hodgepodge of rules that varied in their extremism. Some of the Fizerok Monist belief system adhered to more standard practices of Muslim life, such as the daily call to prayer and the mandatory giving of alms. This second feature proved extremely important to the growth of the compound. Almsgiving is relatively common in Islam, though it's normally a form of charity. Muslims are encouraged to give zakat to those who are less fortunate than them. However, at the Fizerok Monist compound, Satarov effectively replaced zakat with a different type of Islamic tithe called kums. Members were instructed to give at least one-fifth of their income to him, but were likely obligated to give more, and Satarov used it to purchase tools, food, and any resources that the compound might need. It's unclear how he justified this very different interpretation of zakat, but his followers did as they were told. To ensure that his followers had any money to give, Satarov instructed some of them to maintain jobs outside of the compound. These individuals worked as merchants in the city's markets, and they always surrendered their income immediately to Satarov on behalf of the movement. For all his preaching about isolationism, the so-called prophet still needed money to make his dream a reality. Now that the group lived full-time in this walled-off world, Sitarov found it much easier to encourage his members to isolate themselves completely from outside society. Members were forbidden to leave the compound for any reason that wasn't approved by Sitarov himself. But to his nearly 80 members, these restrictions weren't surprising or unwelcome. If anything, they had come to expect this kind of isolation. 
They saw themselves as the lucky ones, the true believers who had access to God in a way no one else did. The Pfizerok monists were content to live within the walls of the compound, isolated from the world. From 1999 to around 2002, the Pfizerok monists settled into life in their self-made utopia. Many members had children with them during the move and were happy to raise them in this new, secluded environment. It's unclear whether Satarov established any kind of educational facility for his followers or their children. But it's likely that children were raised to believe in Satarov's teachings and had little to no exposure to anything outside of this education. Beyond some scant whispers from those in Kazan at the time, not much is known about the inner workings of the Pfizer-Rachmanist compound at all. In these first three years, the group remained relatively silent. The community and the Muslim world largely overlooked the compound. Townspeople certainly thought that Zatarov was strange and that his followers believed in a bizarre iteration of Islam. But the Pfizerachmanists were relatively good neighbors. They kept to themselves and didn't cause any fuss. The few members who were allowed outside went to their jobs and returned with little interaction with anyone outside of work. And so, for several years, the movement coexisted in the community without incident. No one in Kazan knew what went on behind those walls. And frankly, nobody cared. But later, in the mid-2000s, Satarov pushed his agenda further than the group ever imagined. He proposed a new society that would take years to construct. Satarov promised his followers that this decision would bring about the ultimate salvation of the movement. But he had no way of knowing how wrong he was. This new direction would bring ruin to Satarov's entire plan. Coming up, the Pfizerok monists take things to a deeper, darker place, and the group is discovered by accident. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Now back to the story. For years, the Pfizer-Rachmanist movement succeeded in creating an isolated, self-sufficient community on the outskirts of the Russian city of Kazan. The self-proclaimed Islamic prophet Pfizer-Rachman Satarov, now over 70 years old, had finally achieved his vision of an independent caliphate. But as time progressed into the mid-2000s, Satarov had a new, exciting vision. We don't know what form the message took, but Satarov apparently believed that God had given him a very serious, urgent demand. God told him that the movement needed to isolate itself even further. He and his followers needed to completely remove themselves from the misguided teachings of the traditional Muslim world. They had to go underground, literally. 
Around this time, the nearly 80 members of the Weizrock Modest movement worked to make Sitarov's vision a reality. They were tasked with creating an entire underground society by themselves. This could take months, even years. But the prospect of Sitarov's vision was so thrilling that time didn't matter, and the group immediately got to work. Apart from the strange new digging sound emanating from the compound, the rest of the people living in Kazan had no idea what went on behind those brick walls. The Feisrock Monis began digging the entrance to the underground city inside a three-story building that the residents of Kazan could see from the outside of the compound. Other than that, however, we don't know much about the process. We have no idea how the Pfizer-Rachmanis achieved the feat or how long it took them to build enough underground dwellings to house the whole group. But with over 40 people willing to work long hours, the construction went relatively quickly. Sitaros followers eventually dug a labyrinth of dirt rooms, eight levels deep into the earth. A new, heavier silence fell over the compound. The entire movement had gone subterranean. The Pfizerachmanis saw their move underground as just another gift from God, another step toward the practice of self-sufficient, isolated Muslim life that Sitarov championed. There were no photographs of the living conditions in these catacomb-like dwellings, but members later described their living quarters as large and well-equipped, one member declared that there was a room for every family and a bathroom, sink, and gas tank on every floor of the eight-story community, but it's hard to trust this description. The extreme isolation of this subterranean world made the movement all the more insular, but the Pfizerach Monis supported Satarov's plans, no matter the physical or emotional costs. As we've seen in several episodes of this show, isolation is a key tactic used by cult leaders to keep their followers loyal. Psychiatrist Dr. Mark Banchik explains that the more that members are removed from the outside world, the less chance they have to leave. And as Banchik writes, to leave is to be put into danger. But what's interesting about the Pfizer-Rachmanist movement is that, unlike many cult leaders, Sitarov didn't appear to enact any kind of punishment on his members. By the time the group moved underground, Sitarov had simply groomed his followers to trust everything he said. After their move underground in the mid-2000s, the Pfizer-Rachmanists continued their lives much as before. But in such an extremely isolated environment, Sitarov found it easier to keep his followers close by. Children were raised without any access to outside education or socialization. More babies were born into this subterranean community and raised with hardly any exposure to the sun. But the kids didn't seem to mind. They were only familiar with their underground home. As far as they were concerned, there was nothing else out there. The Weizrock Monis continued living like this for nearly 10 years. They existed under Sitarov's watchful eye completely ignored by their neighbors in Kazan and the larger Muslim population in the Russian Republic of Tatarstan. It would take a completely unrelated investigation to unearth the underground society. As a majority Muslim region, Tatarstan had a collection of muftis and deputy muftis that represented the needs of the Muslim people in the state. In 2012, Ildis Faisov served as the chief mufti of Tatarstan and Baliullah Yakupov as his deputy. Both men had become vocal advocates against the spread of violent extremism in the region. Unfortunately, this proved to be a dangerous stance to take. 
On July 19, 2012, an unknown assailant shot and killed Yakupov while he left his house in Kazan. Less than an hour later, Ildis Faisov was gravely injured when a bomb exploded in his car. Faisov survived, but these attacks triggered Russia's anti-terrorism committee to act, a task force mobilized to search Tatarstan, prioritizing any remote buildings or structures where the killer could be hiding. To them, it couldn't be a coincidence that these two Islamic leaders were targeted, especially when they both had been such vocal critics of terrorism stemming from radical sects. As the authorities began searching the city of Kazan for any sign of the unknown killer, it wasn't long before the police became curious about the bizarre compound at the edge of the city. Police later claimed that they had reason to believe that the Pfizer Rachmanis might be hiding weapons or even the fugitive. None of these ideas appear to have been confirmed, but the police didn't need much of a reason to search the compound. The Pfizer Rachmanis reputation already cast them in a suspicious light. In August 2012, a small group of police officers pried open the mint green gate to the Pfizer Rachmanist compound and stepped inside. It looked like a ghost town. The authorities wandered in and out of the crudely built brick houses and found nothing. It appeared that everyone had suddenly left. The men didn't seem to spend much time wondering about the lack of people, at least not at first. They were looking for weapons, clothes, or any sign that this group could have somehow been involved in the July attack. But they came up empty-handed. Finally, the police approached the three-story brick building in the front of the compound. As they walked in, the authorities found something completely unexpected. The entrance to an underground labyrinth. The police officers had stumbled upon an entirely different kind of problem but they had no other choice but to investigate. So, one by one, they descended into the labyrinth. The police reports of the quality of the Pfizer Rachmanist catacombs were much less generous than those made of the members who lived there. Officers found dirt-covered children sitting in rooms that were no bigger than jail cells. Authorities saw no signs of electricity or heat, and several members of the group were visibly ill, including the 83-year-old Sitarov. As this group of heavily armed men trudged through the dark underground tunnels, the entire Pfizer-Rachmanis community descended into chaos. Children screamed as they were grabbed and taken up and out of their subterranean home. Adults watching the raid cursed the invaders. By the end of this initial raid, police took away 27 children and sent them to local hospitals for examination. But that was only the beginning. Suddenly, the Russian police and welfare institutions had to figure out not only what to do with these children, but also their parents. Children could legally be taken away from the compound on health grounds, but none of the adults, including Sitarov, could be removed just yet. Many of the adult Pfizer-Rachmanis refused to leave their subterranean home. And as the commotion thrust the group into the news spotlight, it only intensified the members' desire to retreat to isolation. Reporters descended upon the compound, but they were rarely allowed past the mint-colored gate. Occasionally, a member of the group held court with the press, if only to declare their allegiance to Sitarov. One member, a 70-year-old named Razif Garifulin, told NPR that he and his fellow Pfizer Rachmanis would not move if the police tried to destroy the compound. He added that 
we are ready to die here for Allah and the true Islam. Sitarov himself seemed of little help to the remaining members of his movement. By 2012, the aging prophet was 83 years old and in declining health. He stubbornly refused treatment. Several reports from this period described him as bedridden and delirious, unaware of the slow destruction of his mission. Throughout the remaining months of 2012 and into 2013, the Russian government moved through the slow, convoluted process of dismantling the Pfizer-Rachmanist movement and Sitarov himself. The Russian government charged members of the sect with child abuse and Sitarov with something called arbitrariness, a broad crime in Russian law that refers to actions contrary to the order presented by a law. Basically, the government charged Sitarov with behaving illegally. In February of 2013, the Pfizer-Rachmanist movement was deemed an extremist group and made illegal. Now came the moment that the Pfizer-Rachmanists had dreaded, being forcibly removed from their compound and thrust back into the outside world. But strangely, there's very little information about this moment. For all the threats that the Pfizer-Rachmanists made to reporters, there was no sign that the remaining members put up much of a fight when they were finally told to leave. It's easy to imagine, however, how jarring it was for these individuals to return to a world they had so aggressively rejected. These people had dedicated their lives and their children's lives to a fantasy of self-sufficiency. And then it was over. Despite whatever utopic image the Pfizer-Rachmanists had, the destruction of their movement left a long trail of trauma and misery. The children who had been seized during that first trade were all put into orphanages and other homes away from their own families. Several adult members were charged with child abuse and barred from seeing their children for two years. Parents were only allowed to reunite with their children after they had denounced their former beliefs. Not much is known about the actual sentencing of Pfizer-Rachman Sitarov, when it happened, or how he reacted to his charges. By this point, the self-proclaimed prophet was declining fast. It isn't even clear whether he knew he was going to jail. Whatever his punishment was, Pfizer-Rachman Sitarov likely didn't live long enough to fully serve it. The self-proclaimed prophet died in 2015 in a new kind of isolation, one that was far removed from the vision he had received over two decades prior. It's difficult to find any information about what became of the Pfizer-Rachmanist compound after everyone left. We do know that the three-story building that shielded the catacomb entrance was eventually demolished. But that's it. Maybe the land is still surrounded by those tall brick walls. Perhaps the tunnels are still there, damp from years of neglect. A forgotten toothbrush on the ground, a rumpled towel left on a dirty mattress. For all we know, the compound has become a ruin of itself, a strange artifact of a failed utopia. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time.
Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Cults was written by Georgia Hampton, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new ParCast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify. Spotify.